Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I am actually delighted to be here, and um, uh, I'm... I am writing a book on Augustine's on, on Augustine's politics, which is key to the city of God. But right now, I'm finishing up a book on uh, on Augustine's anthropology, on his understanding of the nature of the person. And the book uh, is is called Fire on the Altar. And I'm going to talk about that tonight, about fire on the altar, and um, and. It's, Hopefully by the end of it, you'll know what I mean by fire on the altar uh, with respect to the human person. It's ironic that we associate one of the greatest intellectuals in the history of Western civilization with the phrase restless heart. It can sound to us like a pietistic affirmation of a personal relationship with God, which is basically a private matter of feeling, or as the Germans would say, gefühl, Schleiermacher's term, the great Protestant Theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher thought of all of theology this way, that all of theology is just an expression of your inner experience of things, your feelings, more romantic than Roman. The obvious truth is that Augustine is not this way. Augustine is not a romantic. He is Roman. Augustine, Augustine can sound sometimes like he's sounding out the romantic poetic depths of individual longing but rather than uh, think of Augustine this way, when we approach him, we should not approach him as moderns. We should approach him in, in a sense through an ancient approach to religion. We must enter into Augustine's confessions not as if it's some 19th century novel about relationships. Not, not, not saying anything bad about that. Just, we shouldn't treat Augustine that way. It's not an autobiography. It's not a novel about relationships, except in one sense. It is about a relationship to God. In this sense, Confessions is, surprise, surprise, fundamentally about religion. It's about our religious nature, that we are made religious by God, and that we cannot not be religious. The modern idea that you can be secular uh, or religious is completely foreign to the ancient mind. You can always only ever be religious. It's the only question to ask for Augustine is, what are you religious about? What are you religious about? And so when we approach Augustine's confessions, um, we are entering into something almost more cinematic than novelistic in the vivid ways in which he paints things, but the cinema that he gives us is a cinema that is fundamentally religious cinema, the cinema which belongs to the altar. We must resist projecting onto his masterpiece a meaning suited to our experience and our time and place and listen to the very religious objectivity that surrounds the astute reader or viewer, if you prefer the cinema image. Augustine himself, at the end of his life, looks back on his own confessions, not as autobiography or as narrative, 
some subjective record about the interior feelings of his life, but as an objective account of his good and bad actions. A true measure, he writes, of the praise due to our just and good God. In his own recollection, then, the work is intended to be read as objective, moral, liturgical reckoning about reality. We're attracted to the work not simply because it's his own reckoning, but because he calls us to make the same objective reckoning about ourselves, to make an objective reckoning about ourselves, which you could call conversion. Principally, he tells us about our need for it. Now, confession, uh, anytime you'll open up a book about uh, Augustine's confessions, one of the first things that you will learn is that confessions has a double sense. Uh, it can, it means both the confession of sin, like uh, what we do when we take the sacrament of penance. Um, more often in Augustine, it is, despite his penitential disposition, more often it is the confession of faith. It is the confession of sin, but it is also the confession of faith. And what is a confession? For Augustine, a confession is an offering. It's something you offer. You're offering up a confession of your sin, or you're offering up praise to God. And where does an offering come from? Well, for Augustine, it comes from the heart. An offering is given from the heart. It is, if you will, a sacrifice. You know, you might not like going to confession. It's kind of a sacrifice to go to confession, to humiliate yourself and name your sins and <coughs> ask for the church's forgiveness. One senses that. One senses that an offering is a sacrifice. In antiquity, a sacrifice is always something burned on an altar. And this is what I want to talk about tonight. A sacrifice which is burned on an altar. Augustine imagines the heart as having an altar. He imagines not only the sacrifice on external visible altars, which you can see all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, altars to false gods, but also in Rome, altars to martyrs, uh, which un uh, unite us to Jesus Christ. Uh, altars are everywhere in the ancient world. Um, but Augustine says there's also an altar inside each of us. Each of us have an altar in our heart. And it's on the interior altar that we must attend to what is burning there. What is burning there? A fire burns on the interior altar of the heart and it will either consume and destroy you or it will purify you. And so we have to ask what is going on in the interior altars of our hearts. And I want to say the Confessions is nothing but an examination of that. What is happening on the interior altar? And how does it relate to the exterior or external altar? Now, as I've said, the Confessions are quite cinematic. And so to illustrate this uh, liturgical view of the Confessions, I want to describe different scenes. I'm going to, in fact, describe five scenes in the Confession which I think helps us to get a, a better grasp of what is meant by uh, an altar of the heart. Uh, through these five scenes, uh, he's going to help us to think about bad sacrifice, 
the bad sacrifice that will burn us, that will consume us, that will destroy us, that will fragment us. And secondly, uh, a kind of sacrifice that you can make on behalf of others, a vicarious sacrifice. Uh, and then um, the kind of sacrifice that the mind can make, uh, the intellectual sacrifice of leaving the material things of this world behind to make an intellectual ascent to God requires sacrifice, he thinks. Um, and, and then how he understands Christ's sacrifice on the church's altar as enabling a, a different kind of ascent to God. And finally, um, how Christ's sacrifice can touch the interior altars of our hearts. And so these are five scenes which illustrate this. And so first one, this one is the, always the most shocking one to people. It comes up in book three, but he leads up to it in the first three books. And um, it's the idea of bad sacrifice and especially sin. This is really shocking to us, but sin, he understands as a sacrifice which is offered on your heart. You have to think, well, if he's talking about sin as a sacrifice offered on your heart, who is it offered to? Hold with that. What are sins? What are our sins, actually? If uh, evil is a privation of the good and sin is a misuse of our free will and an inordinate desire, what actually is it? Does it have anything to it? What are our sins? And Augustine says, well, in one sense, they're sacrifices. In the second book, he famously examines his own stealing of pears. Everybody knows about the stealing of pears. Why do I want to steal pears, he asks. He's not hungry. He doesn't really have any need of pears. And nevertheless, he finds himself stealing pears with his friends. Why? Why does he? For what purpose? He says there's an absurdity in this theft. Uh, an absurdity in taking away some goodness which doesn't belong to him, that he doesn't desire. Uh, and he asks, what is this theft? What does he love in it? His answer is really interesting. On one level, he's loving something good. He's loving, actually, what he calls the flow of sympathy with his friends. You ever feel that? When you're with your friends, you feel the flow of sympathy. You're all kind of moving in the same direction. It sort of doesn't matter what direction you're moving. You're happy to be moving in the same direction, right? That's what he loves. He loves moving in the same direction with his friends. Well, his friends are moving in the direction of stealing pears. So he loves flowing in a sympathetically with his friends. He wants unity. He wants the good of unity with his friends. Um, even at the expense, even with the sacrifice, of, well, in order to have this flow of sympathy, you have to do this evil thing. Okay, I'll make the sacrifice. This shows actually very clearly how sin is this perversion of the good. You've got a good desire for unity with your friends and it's twisted. Augustine strikes at the heart of what sin is in this sense. Sin is a bad sacrifice for some good. He says he was, what he was really doing here is just being in love with his own ruin. Um, but he's struck by the absurdity of our sins and also by our need to be cleansed from them, our need for a sanctuary from what he calls the, the sin's disintegrative power. It disintegrates us when we sin and when we, in our love of sin, uh, we find ourselves disintegrated from within by our exterior actions. So our exterior actions um, are, <laughs> sins, but interiorly, 
It is disintegrative of our good. And so there's something fundamentally irrational about the sacrificial act of sin. He arrives at the shocking conclusion that this is what our sins are. Our sins, our exterior sins, are interior sacrifices. And who do we offer them to? Demons. That's what he says. Our exterior sins are interior sacrifices which we offer to demons upon the interior altar of our hearts. Augustine arrives at this conclusion, however, not through the stealing of pears, but through another scene, the enjoyment of vice performed on a stage. Augustine's constantly interested in vision and how vision forms us. This is a classic Platonic theme. Uh, we're transformed by what we contemplate. Uh, you shouldn't look at porn because that's going to kind of make you pornographic too, right? It's going to transform what you look at. Uh, uh, in the third book, Augustine looks at the negative, this negative side of vision and uh, looks at the spectacles of theatrical shows. Now you want to say, what's the problem with theater? We like theater. Um, he says in 3.2, I, I was held spellbound by theatrical shows. But that's not the bad part. Theatrical show, shows full of images that mirrored my own wretched plight. So that's what's bad about theater is when he sees vice on the stage. And Roman theater was full of vice, the gods interacting with humans in lots of uh, basically pornographic ways. Roman deities and heroes interact, uh, often sexually. Uh, great tragic stories would move uh, almost soap opera-y people to tears. And, and uh, the highly prized end of the theatrical experience was catharsis, right? That you have the flow of sympathy with the people on the stage, right? Very much like the flow of sympathy with his friends stealing the pears. Augustine says, it was precisely the pleasure of this flow of sympathy on my emotions, right? The actors on the stage doing vile things were actually, I enjoyed my sympathy with them. I was captured by them, he says, captured by what they were doing to me interiorly. <laughs> He returns thus to our social nature. He loves the power of sympathy which flowed from the actors to the audience. And he emphasizes how this is recursive, how it turns back on him, how some exterior disorder that he gazes upon then mirrors his interior disorder and inflames it. And from that, he makes a sacrifice, a bad sacrifice. Spectacles form us for a simple reason were formed by the power of sympathy which derives from our social nature. That's a good. We're social by nature. The stream of friendship, he calls it. But where does it all flow, he asks. Where does all of this flow of sympathy uh, go? Augustine um, writes, it led me to abandon you, writing to God, and plunge into treacherous abysses, into depths of unbelief, and a delusive allegiance to demons, to whom I was offering my evil deeds in sacrifice. Now, if you're Catholic and you go to confession, I bet you've never said to the priest, I'm, uh, these are my sins and I'm sorry I offered them to demons in sacrifice. But that's what he says. You can look it up. To whom I was offering my evil deeds in sacrifice. So this is the first thing to notice is that Augustine in 
thinking about his confession of sin, understands the confession of sin as a foul sacrifice, a sacrifice on an altar that's been befouled, right? Uh, this is um, uh, kind of understanding sin as part of a foul liturgy, a liturgy which runs through our lives and misdirects us, dis, literally disorients us. Sin disorients us. It disorients the altar of our hearts, which is made to be pointed to God. But in our sins, the interior altar of our hearts is pointed to, well, demons. What is he doing here? Well, in this opening scene, these opening scenes around confession of sin, he's giving us a severe examination of conscience, a severe examination of conscience that allows us to see the religious nature of our souls, that our souls are liturgical by nature. Our hearts are a kind of altar upon which we either offer ourselves to God this way or turn our backs on him this way. It's never, again, a question of whether we're religious or not religious, but what are we religious towards? Where does it all flow? Second scene. I hope that painted a scene, like a cinematic scene. The second scene um, is his mother, Monica. Monica offers prayers for him, uh, and he ex extensively reflects on them. Uh, throughout, but especially in book five, he confesses that God didn't let go of him even when he was caught in stealing pears or watching pornographic things on stage plays. God was there even when he was caught in these traps, as he says. In 5.13, he says, Oh my God, your hands did not let go of my soul, even in my sinfulness. Through, and why? Through my mother's tears, the sacrifice of her heart's blood was being offered to you day after day. Now, what a terrific image. Maybe, maybe, your mother, maybe you have mothers who pray for you. You think about what, what's the character of their prayers for you? And he says the character of his mother's prayers are themselves a sacrifice. They come from the interior altar of her heart, and he actually calls it the sacrifice of her heart's blood. It's the thing that is uh, placed on the altar on behalf of another. Being offered to you day by day, night after night, for my welfare. God, he views God as using the sacrifices of Monica's heart's blood to intervene for him when he's sinning, right? to redirect him, to turn him to repentance. Augustine will reveal more about this, but right here in book five, he tells us, gives us this scene of thinking of Monica as interceding for him, as someone who prays for him, and what makes her prayers effective? Well, he says it's very simple. Her prayers are not united to demons. <laughs> Her, the inner uh, altar of her heart is actually uh, united to uh, Christ's sacrifice at the altar. And because her inner altar is united to the external altar of the church as a daily mass goer, her prayers have the power to protect him, even though he can't protect himself. Prayers as sacrifice that can be offered for the good of another. 
vicarious sacrifices, which are efficacious precisely because they are united rightly to the one who has merited uh, uh, salvation for us on the cross. He marvels at, quote, the sacrifice of her heart's blood, but even more so, he marvels at God's providence in the work of salvation, that God is working for his benefit through his mother at the cross, even when he's not at the true altar, even when he's residing in a false altar. He writes, you knew all along, God, the real reason I left to seek a different country. It means that we have our reasons for doing things, for moving this way or that, going to this college or that college. But all of these reasons are superficial reasons that God acts often um, outside of our intentions, beyond our intentions. We often don't even understand our decisions, why we decided to come to William and Mary. We often don't understand even what we really want in our wantings. But God goes before us, he says, and seeks us even when we are knocking on the wrong doors. And speaking of his mother's prayers as these um, vicarious sacrifices, it continues to kind of paint a picture of, of where his inner altar is moving. He writes um, about Monica, never a day would pass, but she was careful to make her offering at altar. Twice a day, at morning and at evening, she was unfailingly present in your church, not for gossip or old wives' tales, which must have been happening to some people, but so that she might hearken to your words as you to her words. It's his mother's unity with God. It's that she, she has the flow of sympathy with God that makes her prayers efficacious for him. That's what he's beginning to see by book five. Um, uh, in this sense, it's in fact, in some sense, Monica's prayers, which are efficacious, but it's only Monica's prayers which have uh, been united to an external altar. It's only when your altar is united, your inner altar is united to an a true external altar that her prayers become efficacious. By the end of book five, we see how efficacious her prayers are. Her vicarious sacrifice for him finds Augustine in Milan at the Basilica before the bishop, at the outer courts of the church, as it were. And this is where he meets Bishop Ambrose in the outer courts with his mother standing by him who had prayed for him for three decades and now stands with him for the first time at the door of the church as a figure of faith itself. He marvels also at how his mother's faith is something living, how it's something that grows. Even in Milan, he observes that his mother learns things still from Ambrose, uh, and uh, she uh, has something that he wants, something that has a living dynamism, even 30 years of prayers which are efficacious, um, are not something she possesses for herself, but is a gift which is given to her and which operates on her. Okay, so first image, sins as sacrifices uh, to demons, and the second, sins as a vicarious sacrifice, which we can make on behalf of others only if united to uh, Christ's altar in the church. The third is a philosophical sacrifice. 
Um, it's probably at the recommendation of Bishop Ambrose, or maybe one of his senior priests named Simplicianus, that Augustine first reads the books of the Platonists in Milan when he arrives there. Um, uh, Augustine recounts, if you've read the Confessions, his long journey through Manichaeanism and a little bit of slippage with the skeptics, um, and then he arrives uh, at the Platonists, and, and largely he arrives at the Platonists with the help of the church. He arrives at true, uh, at a true philosophy or a philosophy that's as close to true as you can without revelation with the aid of the church. He reads the uh, Platonic books, not just Plato, but also Platonists. And what they teach is, um, they teach that the, that God is transcendent, that he's raised high beyond all things, uh, and that uh, the, the, the eternal word of the one who's raised beyond all things, the one, is true. That uh, all truth comes from uh, the eternal word of God, the logos of God. Uh, they speak about the eternal word of the supreme being, which uh, is God. They speak about this eternal word, which is raised high beyond all things. They speak about real transcendence. Everything Augustine knows from philosophers before, like Cicero or Varro, is that God's like the soul of the world. You know, basically pantheists. Um, uh, but the Platonists are different. They think that you, as a philosopher, can achieve union with this word. You can achieve union with the one through a contemplative ascent, intellectual ascent. But it requires sacrifice. It requires ascasis. It requires discipline, an intellectual kind of discipline, to make this ascent. Um, now, if you and I read that, we'd say, oh, that's nice. The Platonists wanted to do an intellectual ascent. That's, that's nice. Augustine says, oh, I'm going to do that. He uh, wants to do it. He wants to imitate them. And so he tests their claims and tries to make the Platonic ascent. And in the Platonic ascent, the exercise is that you must transcend the senses. You have, must move beyond the perceptual sensorium and you must even transcend your own conceptual knowledge of things. It's almost meditative. You have to arrive at a glimpse of the one who's raised high beyond all things. And so you must, your mind must be raised above all perceptual reality and all conceptual reality to see the one. And, and Augustus says he did it. He tried it and he did it. And he says he caught the fragrance but could not feast. What does he mean? He does this platonic ascent. He says, I, I caught the fragrance, but I could not feast. He was able to transcend the senses. He was able to transcend his own mind. And he says he was able to see a light that is immaterial, an utterly different light, he says. And it's in this attempt at a platonic ascent that he says God spoke to him. And the thing that God said to him is just uh, what... Uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am being itself, as it were. Uh, the unchangeable cause of all that exists, I am the essence of existence. Um, he says, I heard it as one hears a word in the heart. A word in the heart. A word in the heart. That this vision actually touched the altar of his heart. 
like a fire. And he's frustrated because he can smell the smell of the fire on the altar, but he cannot feast. This is 710 if you want to look it up. Seeing the transcendent cause of the whole metaphysical scale of being should blow you away, right? The essence of existence itself in a vision sheds new light for Augustine. He thinks about everything that exists being good, but not equal. He understands a scale of being, and God is the transcendent cause of that whole scale of being. And this he calls the total view, the total view of being able to see things in the light of God, um, in which the mind moves from lower perceptual goods to higher conceptual realities, the mind is being united to something we can't see. In a sense, the mind engages in something fundamentally liturgical. The mind engages in something like worship, right? Worship of the uncaused cause of all things. And yet he still cannot feast. There's a problem in the philosophical discipline, in the philosophical ascent. The intellect can see that being itself is the transcendent cause of all that is, but can't remain in it, can't feast with it, can't be united to it. What sort of happiness can this Platonist ascent bring if you fall back from it, which he says he does, which everybody does. The Platonists lack the one thing, he says, a sacrifice which would unite the mind to God. In a sense, the Platonists have the right object, God, but they don't have the means to attach themselves to God. They lack the right kind of worship. They have lack of what Augustine calls in the Latin adherari, the, the, it's, we get our word for glue from it, adhesive. Uh, the Platonists lack the adhesive which would attach them to the object of their worship. Um, and it's at this point when he realizes that that intellectual ascent does involve worship, but it's not an efficacious worship. It's not a worship which attaches him that he opens up John's gospel. It's only through the word made flesh, he reads there in John's gospel, that we may be raised up to union with God and be made one with him. It's only through the eternal word incarnate that the creature can have the sacrifice which unites the mind and the heart to God. In this sense, by book seven into eight, he's discovering that Christ is the key, the bridge, the one who purifies and heals, the one who is the fire of divine charity, the external sacrifice which can unite our internal altar to God. The Platonists had helped him to turn his gaze, his vision towards God's oneness, his invisible reality, but he realized that the mind is too weak to be united to God, to partake of his happiness without falling back on ourselves, without curving back. The Platonic Books are a kind of preamble fidei. They lead him to knowledge of God. They take him by the hand and lead him upwards. And he's grateful for this. But it's Ambrose preaching which stirs his heart the most. The books of the Bible, John, St. Paul especially. 
in St. Paul, he finds that Christ is the one who frees us from death, frees us from a body which cannot be attached to God. By the cup of his ransom, he says, Christ is the well-built road opened up by the heavenly emperor. As he puts it, these truths, these biblical truths, were striking deep roots within me. Something operates on Augustine in the outer courts of the church in Milan. The philosophical ascent and understanding the ascent of the mind as a, a sacrifice that is not efficacious, a sacrifice that doesn't really unite him to, to God. And he discovers in the midst of that what he calls a new sacrifice, a new sacrifice. And this new sacrifice he discovers he says is a sacrifice, the sacrifice of an anguished spirit offered to God from a contrite and humble heart. This is a sacrifice that comes from, not from himself. The sacrifice of the anguished spirit offered to God from a contrite and humbled heart is now Christ's sacrifice. The cup of ransom, as he puts it. Christ's very sacrifice strikes roots in him at just the point in which he finally realizes that we cannot make our own sacrifice that would unite us to God. We cannot make an offering that will do the uniting. It is this sacrifice which is, I argue, the key to understanding the whole of the confessions as a Catholic. Okay, fourth scene. Remember, there's only five, so you've got to only go through two more. A fourth scene, and this is a scene that begins with his baptism but ends at the, uh, in Eucharist. In 387 AD, on the evening of April 24th, Augustine, Olypius, Adiodatus, others were baptized at the Easter Vigil by Bishop Ambrose in a wide octagonal font in the basilica's crypt. The water was exercised and blessed by the bishop in the triune name. Augustine descends into the steps of the cathedral baptistry and remembers the words of St. Paul that he had read in the Milanese garden where he, he poured his heart out before God and where he read in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, put on this sacrifice. Let this sacrifice be the thing which unites you to God. The words must have rung like midnight church bells in the temple of Augustine's memory. Augustine baptized him in the triune name, and Augustine writes, so we were baptized. All our dread about our earlier lives dropped away from us because we have the Lord Jesus Christ as the sacrifice which unites us to God, which saves us from death. I could not get enough, he says, of the wonderful sweetness that filled me. You see, the Platonic ascent, he could smell the fragrance, but he could not feast. Now, in baptism, he says, I couldn't get enough of the wonderful sweetness that filled me. He immediately received First Communion and was intensely moved by the liturgy of the church, by sacred music, clerical choirs, singing ambrosian chant. He writes in 9.6, those voices flooded my ears and the truth was distilled into where? my heart until it overflowed 
something from the church's altar pouring onto the interior altar of the heart until it overflowed. Grace upon grace. He delights in the fragrance of it all. I once grasped for you, he writes in 916, but now at last I breathed you. I breathed your fragrance, enveloped uh, by true worship. Augustine knows now, by the end of Book 9, that the altar of his heart has been turned around. It's been reoriented. He knows that it is only God who can draw together all the scattered and fragmented elements of our lives and knows that we must offer ourselves, but our offering must be purified. Our offering must be purified by divine charity, and that is only possible by uniting our hearts to the external altar, to the altar of Christ. He says, O love ever burning, never extinguished, O charity, my God, set me on fire. God must set the interior altar of the heart on fire. This is what you did when you cleansed an altar. You burned it. You burned it to cleanse the altar. And this cleanses the interior altar so that it doesn't make sacrifices to demons. Towards the end of Book 9, Augustine ascends further still with his mother Monica. They make another kind of ascent and make another kind of sacrifice. He takes us far away from the smells and bells of the Milan Cathedral of the Ambrosian Liturgy to Ostia on the Tiber. It's just him and his mother. We were alone conferring very intimately. In paintings of the scene, Augustine and Monica are often shown looking off to the sea. They confer intimately about, as he says in 924, what the eternal life of the saints would be like. That's worthy of contemplation. That's a different kind of contemplation, right? What the, Plato the Platonic contemplation was of the one who's raised beyond all things. Now he's thinking about what are the resurrected saints enjoy? Um, what's, their, what's their world like? What is the eternal life of saints who enjoy the beatific vision like? Augustine wants to draw you, me, his readers, into their vision. Unlike the Platonic ascents of his pagan past, it's not a solitary ascent. It's a communal ascent. It's an ascent which happens in the church, as it were. And it's not followed by disappointment. Augustine and Monica make a mystical ascent. He tells us that they touch eternal wisdom itself. They touch the eternal wisdom who abides above all things. And he says they ache for more. They ache to enter he who is in 925. Their shared vision, like in the Platonic vision you drop back down, their shared vision also doesn't last. They drop down, but they're not disappointed. Why? They've had a foretaste of heaven again. They've had a foretaste of the Trinity, of the happiness which never ends. Unlike Platonic uh, ascents, they don't fall back into disappointment because they fall back into the hope of Easter. Because they fall back into the altar of the church. They fall back into that altar which unites us to God. They do not lament. They do not fear death. They descend a mystical ladder into the reality of the sacrament of the Eucharist. Into the hope of the risen Lord. 
who raises hope uh, from uh, free, freeing us from sin and freeing us for bo bodily resurrection. Knowing that she is dying after this vision, Monica asks Augustine only one thing. Remember me at the altar of the Lord wherever you may be. Because it's at the altar of the Lord where they also can be united. That the altar of the Lord is not only the unity between our hearts and God, but also a horizontal unity in which we can be united to one another and united to the saints in heaven. This is what they have seen. Communion. They've seen the communion of the saints. That this sacrifice really unites us, not only to God, but to one another across death. The longing for the sacrament and the longing to be united to the reality of the sacrament have been revealed as one. Even in death, Monica desires to be remembered only in union with the sacrifice of Christ. The sacraments have formed her in hope, and she dies in that hope. Augustine closes her eyes, and he writes, a huge sadness surged into his heart. He pours out his own tears as his own heart's blood. His own heart's blood offered on behalf of his mother's soul. And now he is making a vicarious sacrifice on behalf of his mother's soul, praying for her at the altar. He intercedes for her. He prays for her. She was once the one who offered a vicarious sacrifice for him. And now he offers a vicarious sacrifice for her, since she, he writes, was also a sinner. <laughs> Hear me, he writes, through that healing remedy who hung upon the tree. Uh, he fulfills his promise. He unites her memory to the sacrifice of the altar. And he writes, because it is at that altar where we win our victory. So there you have the interior altar of the hearts, each having made a good sacrifice uh, um, uh, through the sacrifice of Christ. The fifth image is something entirely different. The fifth image um, comes in Book 10. Books 1 through 9 play very much on Augustine's own narrative, on his own story. But in Book 10, he gives us a model meditation. A model meditation for us to practice, like, here's what the Platonists do to make this ascent. He says, well, now, you Christians, make this kind of ascent as a Christian. In a sense, Book 10 is about how we might make the proper kind of confession from the heart. He wants his reader to be resolutely focused on God's goodness and upon their own conversion, not his, to anyone tempted to think that the point is to admire Augustine, he cries out to God, you yourself are all the good that I have. What we're meant to see towards the end of Confessions is not Augustine now, but the kind of offerings that we might offer. We pay attention, as it were, to what is the acceptable offering which could be poured out of our hearts. What is the heart's blood that we have to offer? on the altar. It's precisely at this vision of the union of the interior and the exterior altar, precisely at the dramatic vision of altars aligned and united, 
that Augustine makes the most extraordinary contemplative turn in the whole of the Confessions. He turns to see the whole created order by this elevating grace that comes to us in Christ's altar. Just as he makes his own sacrifice of praise, he reminds the reader that the whole of creation is penetrated with praise. The whole of creation is liturgical, if you will. He writes in 10.6, You pierced my heart, but the sky and the earth too, everything in them, all these things around me are telling me that I should love you. The whole of creation proclaims that I should worship God, not demons. He now takes us through another exercise of ascent. And this is an ascent, in some sense an ascent of the heart, but it's what he calls an ascent of the memory. Now, just saying an ascent of the memory um, is kind of confusing because when we think memory, we think going back, right? And not going up. But an ascent of memory is what he wants us to do. A different kind of ascent. To lead us in our own uh, understanding of the movement of our minds. Uh, What is going on in our memories? If we're rational and we're made to know and love God, if, if, if uh, we find that the nearest thing to the image and likeness of God in us is in our minds, then we should examine that. We should ex- examine our rational nature. And if we examine our rational nature, Augustine says, we will uh, come to understand that we have vast storehouses of memory in us. And why do we? Why do we have these vast storehouses of memory? There in our memory, we store images, right? From the sensorium. Um, we, we look out at the world throughout our lives um, and we begin to store images. Uh, we modify those images. We get impressions. We make judgments about them. He says, uh, a huge repository of memory with secret and unimaginable caverns can be forgotten, and then they're called back to use. You ever have that experience where you're like, oh, I forgot about that. Why? Why Why do we have these vast storehouses of memory? What are they for? The world passes through our sensorium, and most of it goes right out. But we collect things. We're all collectors. What are we collecting things for? I have this image. Uh, I grew up in Seattle, and my part of my family was from Victoria, British Columbia. And when I was a kid, we, we would take this ship. It was an old kind of cruise ship with the Union Jack painted on it, and it was called the Princess Marguerite. It's this vivid memory I have. And we probably only took it a few times back and forth between Seattle and Victoria. But I stored that and stored all the associated memories. And you probably have that too. And you think, why, why, do I have, why does that memory just kind of stick there? What is going on? My mind is made for that. My mind's made to kind of stack these images um, and to reflect on them. Uh, our mind does this. It's made to do this. It's made to, to collect, to stack. And then to do the work of trying to reintegrate them. 
to find the meaning of them, or to herd them into intelligible categories and thoughts. Who can plumb the depths of the human mind, he says, of our memory? Why do we do this? Why are we made to do this? What is it that we are searching for in our memories? Perhaps for a happiness that can't be lost. Augustine thinks that we have some long-forgotten memory of what our nature was made for, a vague sense of our longing for God, for paradise, for happiness. And that is what our whole soul hungers for, and that's why we stack the memories that we do. Our soul yearns for God in our memory, he says. Happiness, of course, is to be found, though, not in our memories, but in God alone. Because of the weight of sin dragging us down, some do not desire joy in God, he writes. But it is only in God that we can be wholly recollected. It's only in union with God in not just the altar of our hearts, but the temple of our memory, that the scattered elements of our lives can be brought together by God, can be reintegrated into a unity. If we have bad memories, those are memories in which we have a disintegrating force that we're trying to make sense of. And that's just like sin. Sin is this power of disintegration, and our happy memories are uh, the ones that uh, we are remembering precisely for our longing for integration. And he says that it's in this attempt to recollect and our failure to recollect our memory, which turns us towards God, uh, which turns us to our need for union with God, who can recollect us, is the only one who can recollect us. After having taken us through the external world, after taking us through smell and taste and hearing and sight, um, the temptations of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eye, Bishop Augustine finally reveals to us a vision of our soul's longing to be integrated, our soul's longing to be integrated into God's own life. Um, just going to skip ahead here because I'm running low on time. Um, Augustine attends then in the, towards the end of the confessions to this interior world of memory and intellect and will, and a memory and intellect and will which can be raised up into the sweetness of God, raised up uh, into, as he puts it, the blazing splendor of God. You might have seen pictures of Augustine with a, a heart that's on fire, that's coming as truth to his mind, right? That is the flame of divine truth and divine charity coming to touch his mind, coming to touch his heart, and thus to purify, to bring the interior parts of himself back together from all the disintegration, from all the woes of everyday life, from all the laments, from all the things that don't fit together. Whom could I find to reconcile me to you, he asks in 1042. We cannot be the ones who 
reintegrate or recollect ourselves. We cannot abide on our own. We cannot be held by our own powers. We must be united, as it were, by God. What we needed was a mediator to stand between God and men, who should be in one respect like God and another kin to human beings. For if he were manlike in both regards, he would be far from God, but if godlike in both far from us. He sees the great need of having the word made flesh touch us intimately, touch our nature. It's not something that we can be untouched by, but we must have the sacrifice of the altar. We must have this one true mediator and one true sacrifice touch our minds. Heal our minds, heal our memories, heal our hearts. The great need of our nature is to be reintegrated from all the disintegrating powers, to be united to God through the one true sacrifice and mediation of Christ is the only way to have the pieces of life put back together, to have our memories healed, to have our souls made whole and make a proper offering to God. By the end of Book 10, Augustine confesses that however much he's terrified by his sins and his misery, however much he wanted to flee into loneliness, God forbade all of this in Christ, calling us not to retreat into ourselves, but to make our own lives into a sacrifice to make our own lives into an offering so that we might not live for ourselves, but for him who died on that cross. Most importantly of all, Augustine concludes Book 10 by identifying Christ's sacrifice with the Eucharist and identifying the Eucharist with himself as the bishop. He ends Book 10 about the Eucharist as sacrifice. I eat it, I drink it, I dispense it to others. And as a poor man, I long to be filled with it among those who are fed and feasted. That the life, a truly integrated life, is one which is integrated by the Eucharist. A truly integrated life is one in which we long not just to um, set our eyes upon, but to truly feast upon Christ's sacrifice. The cure the cure that he proclaims for disintegration is the Eucharist. The cure for decay and death is the humility of God and his mercy to be made man. The true cure for all that fevers our souls is a sacrificial confession, a confession that we make before God and recognize that only God can make the sacrifice and only God can heal our hearts can, in a sense, put fire on all our altars to purify us and make us uh, the kind of people uh, who are happy. For Augustine, it's clear, the God-man is the measure of man, and when he stirs us, the interior altar of our hearts burn. It's only by uniting the altar of our hearts and the temple of our memory to the fire of divine charity on Christ's altar, that Augustine argues our hearts can find rest. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. We still have a little bit of time for questions, if anyone has any.
So, how many of you have read Confessions? Just out of curiosity, about maybe a third, a third. Uh, this, all these quotes were from the Sister Maria Bolding, uh, her translation, which is you can get from New City Press or also from Ignatius, I think. Um, I think there's another press that's using her translation. It's a new Anthony Esselin translation of the Confessions coming out this year, which uh, is very, very good. Um, but um, my text is all tied to Maria Bolding's translation, so I'm stuck. Yeah. You started to, you, you hinted at it at the end, but I'd like you to say more. What is this beautiful image of the heart as an interior altar change about our reading of the famous line, our hearts are restless? That's great. Um, I, I read our hearts are restless um, in a Thomistic way, um, unsurprisingly. Uh, the, our hearts are restless until they rest in God is what Thomas would, would call um, our natural desire for God. We are religious by nature, and we have a natural desire for God. That desire is inchoate, right? It could hit so many targets, right? It could hit, you know, Eastern religion, pagan religion, Hindu religion. Um, it can hit anything. The natural desire for God um, is... Uh, something which would have to be purified by reason to, like it is for Plato or Aristotle, to reach one true God, right? Knowledge of, of one God. So our hearts are restless until they rest in God is the famous phrase. Um, to think about our interior altars as restless is to think about how they can't on their own hit the target. They need assistance. And Thomas Aquinas will call that assistance sanctifying grace. Right? Uh, and Augustine, of course, also is understanding uh, the, the grace which touches the, the grace which touches our hearts, that purifies our hearts, as also sanctifying grace. That comes to us in baptism, that comes to us in the Eucharist. And it's that which gives integrity to the heart. Now the heart is reoriented. Um, he, he says in the beginning, um, you know, people, people always skip this, the Confessions begins not with the restless heart, but with the greatness of God. That's how Confessions begins, with the greatness of God. Um, and then it says, our hearts are restless until it rests in you, but you are the one to stir us. So we have a natural desire for God, but it takes this movement of God to stir us, to move in us uh, in his direction, to reorient the altars of our hearts is something that is fundamentally for Augustine uh, the, the movement of God. God is the first mover of reorienting our altars, our inner altars. Uh, when you feel remorse, when you feel guilty for sins for offering things to demons. You didn't know you were offering <coughs> food for demons when you sinned. But when, when you feel that, that is God moving you. That's God moving you. Uh, and that's what he says is necessary, that God must stir us to take joy in praising him. Uh, and so that's about the priority of divine action on us, that we actually aren't our own movers. We think we are. 
but we are not our own movers. And uh, we, in, in a sense, we're our own movers in that we have an innate desire for God. And so just, it just constant, we're just constantly religious creatures. Um, we can't help it. Um, is that, is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, so, the, so the, the, when the interior altar of the heart is reoriented and brought right up to the church's altar, um, the heart rests. That's a beautiful question. Yeah, I don't think you should go, Father, I've been offering food to demons. <laughs> um, I, think, I think in this sense that you should think about every time you go to confession, every week think, well, when are the confession times? Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about what, what we do when we think about it. We think, okay, well, when are the confession times? And... When am I going to go? Just the very thought of that is God moving you to do it. It's not you doing it. Like when you think, I'm going to Google what the confession times are, or I know what the confession times are, and when it can fit in my schedule or whatever. That's God moving you to, um, to reorient your altar. And thank God for that. <laughs> that every time you go to confession, it's like, oh my gosh, the altar of my heart needs to be straightened here. It's gotten off kilter, and um, I think in that sense that that confession. I, I, I don't recommend I don't recommend saying to Father uh, that you've sinned in following ways and following occasions, and that you are sorry that you gave food to demons. But I, I do think I do think you should think about um, the confession as actually setting up a right worship in you. Like you're not fit for right worship. You're not fit for worship until you go to confession. And then you're fit. Then your altar's set up to be united to the high altar. Uh, and so I think in that sense, you know, don't, don't use any new formulas. Just think, just think about that, that when you go to confession, you're not only confessing sin, but you're also confessing your faith. That he's the one that can purify your heart and will. He will bring fire onto your altar. And he does it in the confessional, and he also does it at the altar. Thanks so much, Professor. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.